If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35 this Lord's Day, as we resume our study of the book of Exodus, uh, we've taken a break for almost six weeks now with uh, Easter and uh, celebrating Resurrection Sunday and having some guests who shared God's Word with us. So uh, now we're going to resume this study. We have about six weeks left in Exodus, and I hope uh, that God has used and will use the remainder of this study in our lives. Uh, if you've not been with us through much of that, essentially what we've been looking at in the book of Exodus is, is the story of salvation. Uh, we've been looking at how God goes to His people when they are in slavery, uh, unable to free themselves. Uh, God sends them a deliverer in Moses who rescues them, leads them out of their slavery through the waters of the Red Sea, and then they begin a journey towards the Promised Land. And it's along that journey that God gives them His law. He gives them instruction. He gives them commands on how they are to live. Uh, we've said it this way many times. God's not just taking His people out of Egypt. He's taking Egypt out of His people. And hopefully what you've seen and put the pieces together on is that, that this is a picture of the Gospel in our lives today. The Scripture says we too are born slaves. And our slavery is to sin. And we cannot free ourselves from it. We need a deliverer to come, which is what Jesus does. He comes and dies on the cross for us. He is our deliverer, our rescuer. He sets us free from our slavery. He takes us through the waters of baptism. And then we too are on a journey. We just sang about it. We too are on the way to the land of promise. And along that road and along that journey, God has given us laws and given us commands. It's very important that we get this order correct. God did not give the Ten Commandments to His people while they were slaves. He set them free and delivered them and saved them. Then He told them how to live. Grace always comes before the command, before the law. And for us too in the Christian life today, we're going to be looking at Exodus 35 and talking about a number of commands, things we are to do now as Christians. But these things do not make us Christians. If we try to follow God's Word in order to be saved, we will be frustrated. We can only follow God's Word in light of being saved through the Gospel of Jesus. And if that is not clear at this point, I pray that the Holy Spirit would make it clear as we go through this Word today. We're going to pick up in Exodus 35. This is a point now where God has given instruction to Moses. You'll remember Moses is the mediator. He's the one that God gives his word to, and then Moses gives it to the people, and then the people uh, speak to Moses, and he goes and represents the people before God. Uh, this has happened multiple times. Moses has gone up the mountain of God, received instruction, brought it back to the people, gone back up the mountain on behalf of the people, and during this time, God has given a lot of instruction about the tabernacle, uh, about how it is he wants to be worshipped. See, God tells us how we are to worship him. He doesn't just leave that up to us. And it was the same in the book of Exodus. And so now as we come to Exodus 35, we're at a point where Moses is really covering ground we've already been over. He is reiterating these instructions to the people before they begin to build the tabernacle. So we're going to look at Exodus 35, verses 1 through 29. And if you're able to, if you would stand out of reverence for God's word as I read for us today. This is the holy word of God, and this is what it says. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, 
But on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kinder no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. And Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen. The table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light. And the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, the screen for the door, the door for the tabernacle, the altar of burning, of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its bases, the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments, for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons and for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tan ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set in for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. You would pray with me. Father God, we have gone through in this text so many details, so, so, so many particulars that You called Your people to. It's easy for us just to skim right over this. And in doing so, to, to miss 
part of your inerrant word, your command to your people, part of what we need to learn from today. The psalmist says, blessed is the man who meditates on your word day and night. But that meditation leads to fruit. I pray as we look to this word that you would produce fruit in our lives. And we ask you to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As a young man growing up in Kansas, Bart Ehrman professed faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, according to his own testimony, in his teenage years, he, he became what he considered at the time to be a born-again Christian. Uh, one who understands that they indeed are sinners. One who understands that Christ indeed died on the cross for our sin. One who then places their faith in Jesus and repents of their sin. By his own account at that point, he would say he believed in the inerrancy of God's Word, that God's Word is, was, is, and always will be without error. This belief, this testimony led him to become a student of the Scriptures. He studied at Moody Bible Institute. He studied at Wheaton College. He went on to Princeton Theological Seminary. Along the way, Airman earned, or he, he received a, a number of, of prominent degrees, he he gained much education, but there's something he lost along the way. He lost his faith. He went from believing in the inerrancy of the Scripture to, to stepping back from that belief, still considering some to be true, but perhaps some not to be. But friends, that's a slippery slope. And once you start down it, you land so often where airmen landed, in a place where he now refers to himself as a happy agnostic. And with all his education, he's written over 30 books, he's influenced many people, he's, he's not content now just to be a happy agnostic, one who does not believe, no. His goal is to deconvert professing Christians. And so as I read earlier from Mark's Gospel, as we read from Matthew's Gospel, as believers, God has called us to this great commission of Him doing the work of converting people to the faith, well, Bart Ehrman's goal is to convert people from the faith. And he has great opportunity for this deconversion mission every year as he teaches religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Every semester he has students come into his class, many who grew up in the Bible Belt, many who grew up in some sort of Christian faith, many who consider themselves believers, but most who are ill-prepared for the arguments he places before them. And he starts many of his religious studies question, uh, classes with three questions. The first is this. He'll ask his class, how many of you believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Now, we look at college campuses today, we may, not think, we may think many people don't believe that, but in his context there at Chapel Hill, many from the Bible Belt, many growing up in Christian homes, many taking religious studies classes for this reason, the majority, he says, of students still raise their hands. That the majority believe that the Bible is God's inerrant word. But he's laying somewhat of a trap for them. He asked the second question, how many of you have read, and he'll pick some popular novel among the incoming freshmen of that year the case I read about he asked the question how many of you have read the Hunger Games by Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins he asked that question in almost every 
hand in his classroom went up. And then he asked this question. How many of you have read the entire Bible? Ehrman says that when he asked that question, virtually no hands go up in his classroom. And thus the trap is laid. And he says this. Now I can understand why you would read Collins' book. It's entertaining. But if you really believed God wrote a book, then wouldn't you want to read it? If you really believed that God wrote a book, wouldn't you want to read it? Pastor Tony Morita, who pastors a church not far from where Airman teaches, said this. Airman exposes a major problem. He highlights how those raised in a culturally Christian setting have some major inconsistencies with what they say and with what they do. We show what we believe about the Bible by how we use the Bible, not merely by what we say about the Bible. Friends, if I were to ask that first and third question this morning, I would assume, if I ask the question, how many of you believe God's Word, the Bible, is the inerrant Word of God? I, I would hope and assume that every hand in this auditorium, most of the, the hands in the sanctuary would go up. But if I ask that third question, how many of us have read the entire Bible? How many of us have a discipline of reading God's Word on a daily basis? How many of us make it a habit of study to, to dig into God's Word? We say we believe the Bible, but so often we fail to read it. We say that we believe the Bible, but so often we fail to study it. We say that we're a people of the book, that we're a people of the Bible, that we believe the Bible, but so often we fail to do what God teaches us to do through it. And we are terribly inconsistent, and this is why... The Bart Airmans in this world are very successful in their deconversion methods and efforts. Friends, if we are going to be a people of the book, if we're going to be a people who say we believe this, we need to be a people committed to reading it, and we need to be a people committed to studying it, and we need to be a people committed to following what God teaches us through it. And if we will not commit to those things, we are closer to losing our faith than we might think we are. It may help to share an illustration. I've used this before. You Imagine you had a thousand-piece puzzle. And in our house, we've got a shelf. We've got a few puzzles on there. We have one in particular uh, that is a, a, a puzzle of the, the world, of, of the nations, of the globe. There's a lot of water there, so you can imagine how fun that is to try to put together. Uh, many of you have puzzles like that as well. You, you get them out for the first time. You go through the habit of putting that puzzle together. When you dump those pieces out, what do you start with? The corners, the edges. And then you kind of go around those corners, the edges, and then perhaps there's something on the box you can see. There's a, a figure or part of the picture that's easier to distinguish than the others. And you start to put all those pieces together. And the more of those pieces you put together, then, then the, the easier it is there towards the end to fill in those extra pieces. But what happens when you get 998 pieces put together and you check the box for those other two? And they're not there. 
Isn't that an exciting experience? <laughs> no, it's frustrating, isn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have the discernment to dump out a thousand-piece puzzle and to just notice right away there's two pieces missing. But if you put the thing together, if we get down to where 998 are connected, I'm pretty discerning then. <laughs> then I can say, oh, hey, there, there's two pieces missing there. So here's how that correlates. For, for many of us in our faith, we've never put the pieces together. And so somebody like Airman comes along with a, a cleverly designed argument, a well-laid trap. They just kind of take a few pieces off the table and we don't notice because we've never put the puzzle together. Or even worse at times, someone comes along, they, they knock on our door, uh, they have a well-articulated argument, they've got all kinds of literature and brochures, and what they're doing is they're just throwing a couple of extra pieces on that puzzle. And if we've never put it all together, we're not able to discern. And friends, that's why we walk through books of the Bible like the book of Exodus. Now that's why we're taking time this morning to look at a chapter that honestly for most of us I would imagine if we're reading through Exodus we get here and say, okay, we've seen this before, we read this before and honestly we have no idea how this applies to us. But friends, I think it does apply to us and I hope that we'll see that as we put this puzzle together today. But because what we see here in Exodus, what we see here in Exodus 35 is we see a picture of what God has always called His people to do. He calls us to glorify Him. Remember why they're building the tabernacle to begin with. It's for the glory of God. Remember what God told Moses to go say to Pharaoh. We often just have the movie version. Let my people go. That's not the whole sentence, is it? Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. That word can also be translated worship me in the wilderness. God has called His people to be free from their slavery ultimately so that they can go worship Him and glorify Him. Friends, when you put the pieces together from Genesis to Revelation, you see that is exactly why you exist today. We are here. Our, our purpose is to glorify God. First question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. How do we do that? The second question answers it. The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. You do not know, I do not know, how to bring God glory apart from His Word. And so with that introduction, let's look to His Word now in Exodus 35, where we see that we glorify God, point one, with our time. We're called to glorify God with our time. And notice here again what Moses says, verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel. So, so here's the scene. You'll remember from our study, when God delivers the people from Egypt, one of the issues going on in Egypt is the people have grown mightily in number. In fact, the Israelites far outnumber the Egyptians. And this is a concern to Pharaoh. Because he fears that they're going to rise up and they're going to take over. And so we've estimated when they started the Exodus, there are well over a million Hebrews. And so imagine this context, this setting, where now Moses is gathering all the people of God. And he and others are, are communicating this word to the people of God and telling the people of God what they are to do. Verse 2, 
He says, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Now the majority of this chapter is going to be the commands related to the tabernacle. He's going to be giving instruction about how they're to make the tabernacle, about who's to contribute to the tabernacle. But notice what he talks about first. Before going into those details and reminding the people of those details, he returns us to a command we've heard multiple times now in the book of Exodus. Verse 2, continuing. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. So Moses reminds the people before giving them this instruction about this great work there to do of God's created order. You'll remember in creation, before the fall, God creates all things in six days, and on the seventh day He rested. And you may remember we talked about this. Well, why did God rest? Well, was God tired? Did God exhaust Himself in creation? I mean, that's so often what we think about when we think about rest, right? Right? And so oftentimes we've associated the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, as, okay, I can't wait for that, that Sunday nap. <laughs> now, I like my Sunday naps when I get them. In fact, last Sunday was a great one because I got a Masters nap. Any of you golf fans here watch the Masters? Nobody. Anybody having a nap right now, perhaps? Okay, well, for an audience who's never heard the Masters, let me tell you what it's like. You turn on the TV, people are playing golf, and this is what you hear. Designing up for, looks like a nine-foot birdie putt. It's been a good year for him. He goes for his putt. If you hadn't tried it, try it. Just put on the Masters, and it will put you to sleep. <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved sleeping during the Masters. That there's something about that type of rest, that, that laying on the couch, that moment of exhaustion where we just, we're just resting and we're tired. But, but what that does is it kind of confuses us when we come to passages like this because then we have to put the pieces together. Of, Wait a second. Well, God rested. Does God get tired? Psalm 121 verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Friends, every time you go to bed, every time you take a nap, you are being reminded, I am being reminded, that we are not God. God needs no sleep. <laughs> Every time you're exhausted, every time you close your eyes, every time you lie down to bed, you're reminded that God is not like us, that we are not God. That we serve a Creator who in no moment in eternity past or nor any moment in eternity future does He ever close His eyes. And I don't know about you, that, that brings me great comfort. And knowing that I serve a sovereign God who keeps His eye, His watch on all of us. He never sleeps, He never slumbers. He doesn't need rest. Isaiah 40, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And so what God's doing here is he's, he's laying this foundation in creation, not because he needs rest, but because he has created us to need rest. And not just because we need a nap, but we need to find what it means to rest in him. That this Sabbath rest he called his people to, that Moses reminds them of here, this Sabbath, Sabbath rest was a solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Again, we've covered this ground before, but, but we see how in that created order, work six days, rest on the seventh day, that command there given in the Scripture, the Ten Commandments, work six days, rest on the seventh day, we see how ultimately we find that rest in Jesus, and now we begin our week with the Lord's day, find our rest in Him, and then go work in light of that. It's a beautiful picture of what the Gospel does. And it's a reminder here that, that God is sovereign over seven days, not just the seventh day. Notice here what Moses says. It says, verse 2, six days work shall be done. So he isn't just giving instruction about the seventh day. He's giving instruction about all seven days. He's saying you, you should work for the glory of God for those six days and you should rest for the glory of God in that seventh day. And what we have done far too often in the church is we've just segmented out the Sabbath, the Lord's day, and said, okay, really focus on the Lord on this day. And we've ignored this command to work for the glory of God the other six days. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That verse does not mean that when you go to work tomorrow, if you have a boss, especially one that maybe you don't enjoy all the time, that, that when you get frustrated with them, that you're to say, well, you know, Colossians 3.23 says, I work for the Lord, not for you, boss man, so why don't you just take a hike? <laughs> Wrong application. If you just woke up, don't apply what I just said. No, it's a further application of what Paul had already taught the Colossians in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, so whatever you say, whatever work you do with your hands, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so here, here's the context, I think, of this. What, what Moses is teaching the people, what, what Paul is teaching the Colossians, is that when we work and we're tempted to grumble and to complain, we're to remember that our work is to be done for the glory of God. He's talking to a group of people who are about to do some really hard work. Now, I would encourage you, if you haven't done this, to just go uh, do a search on the internet, look in your Bible. You might have a picture in the back there, what, what a depiction of the tabernacle. You know, obviously we don't have a picture of the tabernacle, but what we believe the tabernacle would have looked like based on all these very specific instructions given here. And friends, this, this is a far cry from setting up a tent in your backyard. This was extremely detailed. This was a massive structure. This took so much attention and so much work to put it together, and it was made so that it could be then taken back down. That the tabernacle was a temporary structure. And God called His people to set it up, to worship Him, to take it down, to move a little further in their journey, to set it up, worship Him, to take it down, to move a little further in their journey, over and over and over again. I'm, 
This is just me making an assumption here, but I'm assuming that along the way, somewhere in that million-plus group of people, somebody along the way said, you know, maybe we could just skip putting it up today and just move a little further towards the promised land. I mean, once we get to the promised land, we can just put it up and leave it up, build something bigger, something greater, but man, this putting it up, taking it down, putting it up, taking it down. Maybe we can just skip that for a little while. This is getting weary and this is wearing me out. Maybe there were even some complaints, some grumbling. I mean, just, you know, I I was talking just this week to somebody about the process of moving. And maybe you've got a similar story to this. Uh, Sandy and I got married. Uh, She had a two-door Ford Escort every earthly belonging we owned fit in that car. So the first place we lived in was just a, a temporary, it was like a mission house basically. We put everything that we owned in that car and we moved into that mission house. Some of you here helped me move to Bloomfield. If you weren't there, it took more than a two-door Ford Escort. When you grow in age in life when you have children this expands insanely you you know the picture now is could we just sell the house with everything in it you you probably have boxes in your house if you've moved recently maybe within years you still haven't opened them i've lived in our house for almost eight years now there are literally a couple boxes in the garage that still have not been opened We just accumulate all this stuff. So imagine this. Imagine if rather than us being in this culture where, you know, you you rent for a while and eventually maybe you buy a house and you live in that house and maybe you move up in a house, maybe you move three or four times and maybe you live in the same house for all these years. Imagine if you moved every six months. Imagine if you were a sojourner all your life like that. Would that be frustrating? God's people here, it's not just the tabernacle that they're putting up and taking down. It's their tents. It's all their stuff. And it's over and over again. And you can imagine, again, I don't know about you, but but when I'm moving my stuff, maybe tempted to grumble a little bit there. Complain. God's people here, I'm sure, the same. The grumbles, the complaints... And so I think it's, it's providential that before going through this process that God is saying, okay, let me remind you of the whole context here. For these six days, whatever your work is, do it for my glory. If it's putting up a tent and taking down a tent, do it for my glory. If it's working for a wicked, ungodly boss, do it for my glory. If it's being in the midst of a wicked and corrupt generation, do it for my glory and be a light of the gospel. And notice what else he says. He says, do this work and on the seventh day rest. And then this warning, whoever does any work on that Sabbath shall be put to death. Now for some we read that and we think, whoa. But again, friends, this is a reminder. All sin leads to death that there is no sin so inconsequential that christ did not die for it on the cross 
All sin leads to death. And so he's reminding the people, this is a serious command he's doing. So, fast forward here, 2018. Uh, we're not having a tabernacle party after church today. You don't have to put it up, take it down. You might read all this and say, well, that's great for them. How's this apply to me? Well, friends, we're still called to work. We're still called to work six days for the glory of God. We're still called to find our rest in God on the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day. We're still called to these commands in Colossians. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. We're called to this command in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do and work or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Friends, do you know the context of that passage? Do you know who it is Paul is addressing there? You turn to Colossians 3 and you find that that context in that passage is Paul is writing to slaves in regards to their masters. And we've talked about this before, that this is not that the same equivalent to the atrocity of slavery that occurred in, in our nation, in our nation's history, but, but it's also not a pleasant experience here. We don't equate Colossians 3 necessarily to just any job we go and get. These people were still slaves. They often had gone into so much debt that they had to go to someone with resources and say to them, I will enslave myself to you. You will literally own me for the next decade so that I can work off this debt. And I will be your slave and you will be my master. And Paul says to those people, often whom in this case, they're Christians who are the slaves, and oftentimes their masters may not be Christians. And he says to these Christian slaves who are owned by an unbeliever, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. He says in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Friends, there's a ton here about the attitude we need to have as God's people in our workplace, in our careers, in our jobs. We should be people shining the light on Christ and so often we are a people shining the light on ourselves. I deserve. This is mine. How dare you? Pastor, you don't understand the people I work for. They're, they're crooked. <laughs> they're twisted. They're corrupt. Philippians 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Friends, we have this brief window in our life to shine the light on Christ and off of ourselves. And we do it every single day we go to work. And we do it on the Lord's Day when we worship. It is about Him and not about us. And we are to give God glory with all of our time, with all of our week. Point two, we are to glorify God with our treasure. Again, we've covered this ground before. So just again as a, a, a review here, verses 5 through 9, He's telling the people to bring all the precious metals, bring all their fabrics, bring all these goods, animal skins, all these things needed to build a tabernacle to, to bring them to the work of the Lord. And notice what happens, verses 20 through 24. 
this records that they did what the Lord told them to do. Again, we're people who say we believe in the Bible, but do we do what it tells us to do? Here we have record of people who did it, and notice how they did it, verse 5. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then verses 20 through 22, they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. Verse 26, all the women whose heart stirred them. Verse 29, all the men and women whose heart moved them. There's a direct correlation between the condition of your heart and the condition and concern of your giving. Giving... It's a heart issue. This is exactly how Jesus addresses it over and over again in the Scriptures. He says to us that the heart of the redeemed should be a generous heart, but a generous heart will not redeem you. He says in the Scripture we're born with a cold, dead heart. Many of you, perhaps this morning, you struggle to believe, you struggle to read the Word, because perhaps the struggle is your heart is cold and dark and stone, and you don't know what it is to believe. You need to repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And then He gives you a new heart. And an overflow of that heart then was to be a giving heart, a generous heart. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be there's a direct correlation between the heart and what it is we treasure a generous heart treasures a generous heart sees treasure money wealth material things as a means to glorify god they give to the lord in his work so that god will be glorified a selfish heart sees treasure, money, wealth, material things as a means to bring them security, satisfaction, and pleasure. And they hoard for themselves. You want to know what that looks like? Luke chapter 12. Jesus gives us the parable of the rich fool. It says this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones, larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. Now listen to this. That then he has a conversation with his own heart. That then I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Soul, you are satisfied. Soul, you are secure. Soul, you are pleased. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It would seem that the wages of sin is not only death in the Old Testament, it's the wages of sin or death in the New as well. All sin leads to death. 
and the mark of the selfish, hoarding heart is not generosity. It is bringing glory to, to myself, glory to ourselves rather than glory to God. We're called to glorify God with our time and we're called to glorify God with our treasure and we can do that in so many ways. And this is usually the point in the sermon where the, the skeptic begins to say, oh, well, here we go, here goes the pastor talking about you need to give more money to the church. Because that's not the application here. The application is you need to see all your money as the Lord's and give it as He calls you to give. My concern today is not that we pass the plates a second time and get more money for offering. I'm not concerned about the offering today. God has richly blessed our church. There are times I've been here when we've been over budget. There's times I've been here when we've been under budget. And God seems to work it all out so we can trust in Him for that. But here's my concern. My concern is that so often when we view money, we, we view it as ours and the Lord's as a percentage of it. Rather than saying that it's all the Lord's. It's all His. And He's been... He's given us stewardship over it. And He said, be wise stewards of it. Use it for my glory. So I'm not concerned this morning about Bloomfield Baptist Church's budget. I'm concerned this morning that we at Bloomfield Baptist Church give for the glory of God. And by all means, give towards the ministries of this church. But friends, there are people God is raising up from this church going to the mission field. Give to them. When we have students going to Poland this summer raising money, give to them. We have students who've grown up in this church who are going around the world to do missions. Give to those things. This is not a give more to the church. It's give more to the kingdom. I'll give you just one example. I've gotten letters over the last couple of months from two specific students in our church who are going to do mission work. And one of them has already raised all their money. I found out this morning, praise God, one of them is still raising money. Cameron Roby. Cameron's raising money to go on a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ, known as Crew now. He's going to Gatlinburg this summer. You may wonder, well, why would you do a mission project in Gatlinburg? Well, college students come literally from all over the world to work in the Smoky Mountains for the summer. And Crew strategically has a summer project there where these students then are able to interact with these students from around the world and share the gospel with them about God's, to God's glory, see people come to faith in Christ and disciple them and they grow. Listen, I'm here today in this pulpit as a direct result of the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. I became a freshman, a Christian during my freshman year of college through that ministry. I'm here today in this pulpit through summer projects like this one. I went to North Myrtle Beach in 1992, and there that summer God worked in my life in such a way I freaked my parents out. I called them and said I was changing my major. I thought I was called into ministry. They thought I'd join a cult, probably didn't know what was going on. But it got me here. Now, if you don't like me here, then shut this off. But if you're glad that God's worked in that way through this ministry, support Cameron Roby. I texted him this morning. He still needs $1,000. Can we not do that today? And just support this ministry. You can make a check to the church, put his name on there, we'll get it to him. Listen, my concern is not our, our light bill this week. My concern is we need to give for the glory of God. There are ministries and missionaries serving all over the world, and so many of them get by on pennies and we feast 
have a generous heart and give for God's glory. Lastly, point three, glorify God with your talent. Again, we've covered this before. We're wrapping up, but just as a review, Moses reminds the people here that they are to give with the work of their hands and their skill and their talents for His glory. They're to work on the temple. Men and women are to bring Him glory by using their skills and their talents and their trades. And then he shows us in verses 25 through 29 how they do that very thing. And notice again the heart connection. In verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them used their skill. Verse 29, all the men and women whose hearts moved them. Friends, when God redeems the heart, He redeems the hands. And He calls you to work for His glory. He gifts us to work for His glory. But unfortunately, somehow in the church, we've gotten this confused. And so we look to passages like Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4, these passages that talk about spiritual gifts. And we tend to individualize those, that it's about us and not about Him. Well, I've got the gift of... Well, I don't have the gift of. Friend, any gift you've been given is a gift we've been given. Your giftedness exists for the glory of God in His church today. Go back and read those passages. Romans chapter 12 talks about all these gifts are there to build up one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how all these gifts are for the common good. And 1 Peter 4, I'll read it, verses 10 and 11 as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, God, that You have not left us without it. We thank You that the only way we can know how to glorify You is through it. Father, I pray for those this morning who perhaps they have sought to, to live, to give, to use their time, talent, and treasure for Your glory, but they're trying to do that in order that they might be saved. They think somehow if they work hard enough, they'll be saved. Father, would You show them the foolishness of that thought? Lord, would you help us to all deceive that, that we can only glorify you through our time and our talent and our treasure once we've been given a new heart. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who's yet to be redeemed, yet to understand what your word teaches, that all have sinned and fall short of your glory, that the wages of sin is death, that you demonstrate your love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us that if we will confess Christ as Lord and believe in our heart, God, that you raised him from the dead, that we will be saved and that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, would you penetrate their cold, dark heart of stone with that truth that they might believe and respond and repent. And Lord, for us whose hearts have been made new, for perhaps, Lord, we have grown weary in glorifying you with our time, talent, and treasure, Lord, would you bring us to repentance as well, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.